0: It's September 8th, 2023. This is a Room Now podcast. This week, special on the podcast, good friend, special guest, Dr. Janet Pope. Hi, Janet.
1: Hi, glad to be here, Jack.
0: Janet's amazing. She is not only prolific, she's fun. She is a, a jack of a Janet of all trades. And uh, we've been working on a lot of different things together. This month, we're working on the RA campaign, um, on hard decisions in RA. And we've got a lot of good things coming your way. Today we're going to cover the news and cover some things that are in the campaign, but I want to begin by asking you, Janet, uh, I know that you do a lot of teaching in all mediums, including online and whatnot. Um, Do you listen to any of these podcasts or any of these videos yourself?
1: I do indeed. In fact, I like to listen, especially in areas where I'm certainly not an expert, because it's, and even when I am kind of knowledgeable in an area, I think it's good to get another opinion because we don't always agree, nor should we. And it helps to, you know, shed light on should I change my practice? Is this a game changer? Or did I look at it the wrong way? Or is there another way to look at it? So I do. Yep.
0: And, and do you, you told me you do that at like double the speed? Is that right?
1: I do indeed. So it's a little tip, a little clinical hashtag clinical pearl for people. Um if if it's in your own native language and you don't feel there's an accent, first of all, go to 1.5 speed and you can quite quickly get up to two times the speed. You can always do that on the bottom of any YouTube viewing. Um so because I'm listening to podcasts usually via YouTube while I'm, you know, maybe making dinner or doing whatever. And um so I actually feel I'm getting double the credit time.
0: What happens when you have people like you and I who talk fast? And then you turn it up to 200%. I mean, it's really in uh, uber chip, chipmunk mode.
1: Yeah, not too many people are in chipmunk mode. You'd be surprised at how, relatively speaking, English speakers talk a lot more slowly than, say, Spanish or French, in my opinion. But I don't know what they're saying in Spanish and French, so I could be totally wrong.
0: <laughs> All right. So let's get into some highlights from this week in, on the on the Room Now website. Uh, I like this article from ARD, and you're the person who's going to explain not non-inferior to us. So this is an article from Lisa Stamp and colleagues where they're doing, again, great work in gout, and they came up with this uh, paper that says placebo is not non-inferior to colchicine in gout flare prevention. So the idea here was a 12-month trial, 200 patients on allopurinol. First six months, they gave them colchicine 0.5 once a day or placebo and then at the end of six months, they stopped the colchicine. Overall, at six months, gout flares 0. 0.61. Um, with placebo, 0. 0.35. With colchicine, the non-inferior margin on this was 0. 0.12 gout flares per month. Basically, they said that it was not non-inferior. And then after stopping the colchicine the second six months, there was no difference between placebo because I guess you got rid of, rid of all your gout flares because um, you kind of front load those with Urate starting urate lowering therapy, so it looks like culture scene is better. But this language of not non-inferior, do you want to help our audience better understand that?
1: Right, so statistically, first of all, nothing, you can never say statistically anything's the same. Even identical twins statistically aren't the same. So you can say it's either statistically significantly different, or if you're empowering a, a study to look at uh, what what we think of in our mind of equivalence, equivalence means around a point estimate, a confidence interval like oral surveillance that we'll talk about later, that if things are within that confidence interval, then they would be considered what we would say in lay language, similar or not not non-inferior. So they're statistically in a realm of a possibility of a point estimate that has a confidence interval around it. So the easiest way of not non-inferior means about the same. But I didn't think it was about the same. I mean, the P-value is actually... It's pretty the p value is nowhere near statistical significance, but it wasn't it wasn't supposed to be a superiority trial, which I probably would have designed that way and right. clinically the the graphs diverge in that first six months i if I were the patient, I would have rather rather been on colchicine if I tolerated it because they did have less flares. And that's what I would have still probably done at the end of the study said, why not give colchicine in Canada? It's really inexpensive. I, we won't go there in the US that so the prices have changed, but um, to decrease the chance of a gout flare. And then, yeah, once you're in steady state around you know three months in this trial, it was at six months to stop it. It didn't make any difference once you came off it. So when I retweeted it, people called me on it. I said, look at it, it looks like colchicine's a bit better for a while. And people said, no, 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 it's not better. It's non-non-inferior.
0: Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I kind of agree with you in that interpretation. Um, I, As opposed to, you're right, I think I, they should have done just the superiority trial, but I would imagine that the non-inferiority trial has some benefits in in sample size and and, and the construct of the trial, does it? Or are they equally? You know
1: what, Jack? Usually it doesn't. Usually um, an equivalence-ish trial has a larger end than a statistically different because it's easier... In many ways, to not have that tight confidence interval of, say, like a 15% point estimate around something. So often, equivalent studies, non, non inferior studies, often need a larger end. So it's kind of weird they did it, but they did it. Good for them for doing it. Will it change my practice? No, I'm still going to use Coltisine. But I'll say if you don't want to take it, or if you have diarrhea, at least maybe a you won't need it certainly in the second half of the year. Maybe you won't need it at all when I start allopurinol. But if you've had a lot of attacks recently and I'm starting you on allopurinol, I'm sorry, I'm a bit old fashioned. I'd still use the coltacine for a while.
0: All right, so we're gonna venture outside of rheumatology and talk about genotyping. This is a study that I found um, really interesting and it looked at this issue of whether you could get any benefit out of genotyping a newborn and looking for mainly monogenic um, you know, diseases, uh, inborn errors of metabolism and whatnot. In this study, they had almost 30,000 newborns uh, and they genotyped them right from the start. They found uh, nearly 3% who had a genetic disease um, that was identified by the genotype. And half of them were later diagnosed as actually having that disease. So the positive predictive value is 50%. Overall, one in 500 newborns could benefit from using these larger um, uh, gene panels as first tier screening of newborns. The issue here is previously they weren't refined enough and weren't accurate enough, and had problems. So they really didn't pan out as having this degree of, of predictability or utility. Uh, and you know they do you know, single gene assessments with finger sticks for like uh, PKU and other things this widens the possibility. I bring this up because do you think something like this could be done that would be helpful in identifying autoimmune and inflammatory diseases?
1: Well, first of all, we don't really have very much monogenic uh, uh, diseases. I mean, we like the rare, rare things, the the traps kind of kids and um, congenital sarcoid that NOC gene and and all the traps cousins that I just call laps flaps because I don't remember what they all stand for, but. Yeah, it's it's kind of too rare. That's the first thing. The second thing is just as an aside before I kind of I'm hedging on the answer for a sec, um it's amazing they got ethics uh, IRB approval for 30,000 uh, uh, pricks on, pro- probably it was done with the PKU and the uh, TSH on a little, uh, a little their heel sample, but uh, because, and it's also amazing parents agreed because, you know, this could have huge implications in some countries on maybe this kid would never be insurable, but, you know, we won't go there. We won't go to the big brother aspect of it. Um, but yeah, there could be a value. And I think a 50% predictive value, is that high enough that I'm going to, to worry about my kids say having a type 1 diabetes which is polygenic and probably you need well you do need another hit like getting a viral illness or something that's going to blow out your pancreas but you know that a 50 50 if the kid's positive is that enough to worry um the kid's too young to know, but worry the family, the rest of that kid's uh, childhood days or what? So I, I think, you know, it does bring into consideration, what if you started doing um, these BRAC uh, genes or something for breast cancer on a little baby? Does that mean this kid's going to, you know live with that all their life i mean that would be more in girls but those genes are also associated with some cancers in men as well so i don't know it's a little bit uh, dystopian in my opinion but said and done i just don't i don't think we're ready for prime time yet i mean with with the way things are going this might be commonplace in 10 years with all this AI learning stuff, and maybe only going down that genetic line, if there's a positive family history, or if there's, um, you know, a certain combination in the polygenic diseases, right? Once you're beyond monochromic, or monogenic, you can get into polygenic, probably by smart people doing things over time.
0: I mean, it supplies not only to genetics, but also to, you know, the the idea of you, you're you're getting evaluated, or you're admitted to the hospital, everybody gets you know, full-body CT scans or full-body MRs, and then you only image the thing you're interested in, in, or maybe there's someone shows a cost efficacy to, you know, finding things that they didn't show up for. I can't can't imagine that working, but this is very Big Brother-like. It's certainly dystopian. I think it's a very good word. Um, Our next one is actually comes from Rich Fury, who was featured in a plenary session that was published in the journal Lupus, and it's a Discussion of um, zoster risk, but really as it relates to drug therapy that targets uh, alpha interferon. And so, in uh, in the short amount of information provided uh, by Rich, uh, patients in the anafrolimab, the antibody against alpha interferon, said had an eightfold higher rate of herpes zoster. And if you look at the actual incidence rates. Um, on anafrolumab, 6.9 per 100 patient years. That's very high. That's 69 per 1,000 patient years. That's higher than actually the, any of the JAK inhibitors. Versus 1.5 on placebo, that's about right, 10 to 15 per 1,000. So it's really uh, much higher with alpha-interferon inhibition. And then he goes on to say that there are other drugs that t- either directly or indirectly target alpha-interferon, cifilimumab um. Lidiflimimab, which was in I think the New England Journal this year, uh, Daxdilimab. I don't I don't know what that one is. And um has uh, some effects on alpha interferon. Um, what's your take on this? I mean, do you think that um, your approach to anafrolimab should equal your approach to Jak inhibitors when it comes to worry about zoster? Should they all be vaccinated? Should you? What, what do you? How do you consider this?
1: Right. So, um, fortuitously a trainee and I have just written something for the Canadian lupus uh, website so for the patient website on uh, the fact that we think everyone should every lupus um, adult 18 and over should be offered the Shingrix vaccine and in fact uh, just by the way um, Health Canada says this but so does um, if you look at uh, CDC they're saying any immune suppressed adult 18 or older can be it doesn't say should be but can be offered or it's can more than should can be offered the shingles vaccine so just just to know i think our standard of care um is really changing so because of that i've actually reviewed the data not specifically on what dr fury did and by the way he's always excellent so anyone that doesn't follow i'm sure he's he's a powerhouse but um so we i think we already knew that um shingles was increased in um looking at the um interferon alpha pathway we already knew that and the other thing is which we know but i don't think it's broadly talked about is that the risk of shingles is about Two to four times higher in background lupus patients, active lupus, any lupus, compared to RA, and the RA patients on average are about 10 years older. So we have to realize that lupus has always been sort of an epidemic of reactivation of herpes zoster compared to even RA What I think is interesting though, is this is a huge differential. I I kind of always said, this is what I kind of told patients and it's somewhat true that on a JAK inhibitor and not so far on a TIC2 as an aside, but on a JAK inhibitor and RA, your background rate of shingles was about one in a hundred person years for active RA of whom 40 to 50% are on background prednisone. You double that if you were on adalimumab and you almost double it again if you were on a JAK. So that's how I would tell patients. So that meant it was about four per hundred patient years. So being about eight per hundred patient years, you'd say, well, is lupus increasing it as well as um, anaphralimumab or the other interferon pathways? Probably. What I think is really weird is the background on placebo, because they would have been on a lot of prednisone in these trials, was actually a lower rate than expected. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think it dampens over time. I actually believe that although it's elevated over time on anaphralimumab, this belief, not necessarily fact, but my understanding as I look at the curves is there is is a probably you eventually attenuate that elevated risk, and it comes down again. And we do see that on lots of drugs that your highest risk is incident use, and then prevalent use, it goes down somewhat. So what's what's most interesting to me about this is number one, we should be vaccinating our patients, and this is another plea for all lupus patients, irrespective of what they're on, because the rate is higher, and because we have a really good vaccine that's really helpful for the people. And number two, I think is that the placebo rate was far lower than I thought, than yeah. I thought it would have been, like I than I thought I would have guessed.
0: Yeah, I, I I think this rate is uh, both in the placebo, certainly on the alpha interferon inhibitor and anifrolumab, it was. Um, was even, it was higher than expected, and certainly that uh, uh number is higher than I think the JAK inhibitor. So yeah, I think when I worry about this, I've only gone after um, vaccinating lupus patients who are on high dose of steroids going on a JAK inhibitor, um, and I've only used a little bit of uh since its release. So this is going to color my, some of my thinking, especially with some of your comments.
1: Right, and just remember though that these patients were many of them not a hundred percent, but many of them were on background glucocorticoids, but at highly different ranges of dosing. Number one, number two, they were also on salsep, and I don't know what like a lot of them were on salsep. They could have been on Plaquenil, Azathioprine, but a lot were on salsep, and I. I wonder if CellSept has has a risk as well, but again, placebo would have an equal proportion on CellSept and the same on average steroid dose, so it is it is higher than I thought well it, it's basically the differential between placebo it's about an eightfold increase almost so on anaphrolimumab so i guess get their arms out get them vaccinated may as well do it at the, their diagnosis or just now as they come to clinic just prescribe it and get it get it going for our patients
0: oh so are a lot of bad players running together if you have lupus bad enough to get on steroids or Selcep or anaphrolimab or whatever obviously the numbers are going to be much much higher and these are the people you need to worry about So this past week I did a a Twitter poll because we have an upcoming um, nice blog next week on de-escalation. And I did a Twitter poll um, and got over 300 votes in one day. Established RA in remission on methotrexate, a TNF inhibitor, and hydroxychloroquine. Should you or how do you withdraw therapy? 10% said never. 25% 25% aim just for lower doses. Um, 23% slowly withdraw all therapy, and 40 or 40% said just reduce the number of therapies that you, they're on. So either so either reducing the number of therapies or the dose of therapies is about two thirds of our answers. With about 23% saying no, aim for getting off drugs. You know this drives me crazy. My point being, if you got RA under remission, you, a disease that you worry about, can't control, and uh, despite your best efforts. You know, why are you withdrawing therapy other than patients want to be off therapy? So I'm going to bring you now to the Arctic Rewind study that was also put out this week. This is uh, about 100 patients entered the trial, final data on 84. They were in remission for more than a year. And there were several arms in that. One arm was people who actually um, um, tapered to discontinuation. And what they showed is that if you taper to discontinuation, Their flare rates um, in the next six months, I think, was 63% versus 5% who stayed on the TNF inhibitor in the Arctic Rewind. So basically, tapering is, if you're going for discontinuation, has a big risk. But what they said is like sort of like the asterisk at the end was, nonetheless, most patients regained remission with reinstatement of the TNF inhibitor. So does this kind of study inform what we do?
1: Well, I think it does inform us, but not with their conclusion. I would say when you stop drugs, they stop working. Uh, you know, 60% flare weight versus 5%, you know your patients, what group they'd rather be in, number one. Number two, I did do your survey and I was in the 40 some percent that said, just get them off one drug, keep the rest, which probably meant hydroxychloroquine because you didn't give us the option of drugs. Sure. You can't, you, you can't yeah. do that in these surveys, the way they're they're formatted. Um, so what I think is, um, first of all, all well, these patients it was real world care so they actually really did need their um their 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 drugs because if you just started an early RA and you're randomizing to a bunch of drugs or a few drugs you can get some people off drugs some of them, because they maybe didn't need them to begin with they they only needed one drug and not two or something but these this was a real world. it was actually a nicely designed study and good for them for following up on it and I did hear the oral presentation at uh, ULAR. It was a good presentation, but my take home is a bit different uh, it's more like your take home I think is you right. know if sixty three percent are flaring, why do we want to do that to patients? Some people won't regain, and even if you will, you could lose work it's pain and suffering and We'll have a rare patient that this is the flare that actually subluxes their their dominant hand, second and third MCP, that we can't once you're subluxed, we can't get that back. So why would we do it? You know, these were serious patients in the real world. They actually really needed this stuff. So I would say you can take you can taper, but I don't even like that word. I'd rather say you can reduce dose, but when you stop drugs, they stop working, shockingly.
0: Right. And, but I think that the you know what the main retort to that is, hey, they're going to stop the drugs anyway. Well, that's a whole different story with noncompliance and your level of trust with the patient and how much you're educated. The I think patients say, my doctor's got me on four drugs for my arthritis, and then would they not be happy by saying my doctor reduced my drugs to just two? You know, it doesn't matter which ones you know to use so much. It may matter, to, and so I always try to stop the one that's most objectionable to the patient. Maybe right. they're worried about that hydroxychloroquine eye thing. Maybe they really don't like methotrexate. You know, uh, the idea is you can get away with less therapy. And I think that that is the take-home message on this. Um, yeah. Another sort of um, woeful problem um, published today in on Room Now is this um, interesting report uh, about uh, referrals. And it's a study from the University of Vermont where... They looked at referrals to the rheumatology division in a six-month period in 2019. They had over 1,000 referrals for arthralgia. And the question was, you know, how effective are these referrals in identifying inflammatory arthritis? Um, Of the referrals, 85%, not surprisingly, came from PCP, 5% ortho, 2% derm. They only evaluated 697. That means they're only seeing 70% of the referrals. Therein lies some problem. and the diagnoses, 26% with inflammatory arthritis, which could be RA, SPA, PSA, et cetera, 50% with OA, 21% with FM. The problem with these re- this report is number one, that the people who were doing the referrals weren't really doing much work, meaning that they didn't document how long the symptoms were, that morning stiffness, things that you would normally that we would normally do easily. Uh, about half of them had a, a documentation of a joint exam. The median delay till time of rec- being seen was nine weeks. Only 20% were seen within six weeks, which is the guideline in both the ACR and ULR about when a new patient should be seen. Um, but yet they were pretty prolific in ordering serologies. Half with ANAs, 38% with RF, 18% with CCP, and only um, 4% with B27. So. You know the idea is this whole issue of referrals is a gigantic mess. Meaning we believe people are referring us uh, their patients earlier, but I don't think we're doing a very good job at one promoting our, uh, what we want and how patients should be referred. Setting up rules for if you see arthrologists, do X, Y, and Z. Don't do A, B, and C. You know, it's part of the ACR campaign against that. Uh, and really, we we are most rheumatologists are. More, are would love to see these early patients um, and say we want to see them, but when I have spent a lot of time trying to teach people about how to do early arthritis clinics and how to make room for these people, it doesn't work in a business model, an economic model, meaning we would rather, as rheumatologists, have our clinic full of people who we probably shouldn't be seeing.
1: Yeah, uh, you've you've hit the nail on the head over and over. First of all, the fact that they could even see seven hundred and some is is probably pretty good because we reject referrals daily here, and it's a waste of time because the the family docs know that, so they might be referring to three rheumatologists at once. So it's like triple the work to say you know reject, keep, whatever. We we've studied this. Other people, many people have studied it, and and the problem is first of all, the primary care, we didn't teach them any room. It's not their fault that they don't know anything because we have so few hours of face time with them in medical school. And there's no mandatory room elective when you're uh, in your family medicine residency, or even in internal medicine residency, strongly suggested, but not necessarily mandatory for most uh, uh, jurisdictions. So, you know, people don't know. So number one, they don't know. Number two, We've looked. Many people have looked. There's something like a thousand times more ANAs ordered than RFs, and yet lupus is a hundredfold less common. So that's like ten thousand times more ANAs, and and of course they're positive in almost one in three people, and their dogs as well. So you know it's it's brutal. So um, we're trying to actually get that an ANA can never be repeated by Ontario uh, government paying for it. Number one, but I said I think we shouldn't even have non-specialists order an ANA because the any trigger for referral is the patient complains enough or a positive test and again it's difficult for, if their pretest likelihood was zero it's pretty tough so I think it's a mess so one thing that we've looked at and again and it's not unique to our site but we've published on pain diagrams so if someone says positive ana and they have pain throughout neatly colored through by the patient throughout their body it's fibromyalgia but lupus has more fibromyalgia right so if the white count is sent and it's really low or they've got protein in their urine we're going to see them but if they have a normal cbc ana is not very exciting and they have a, a multi-area pain diagram unfortunately we don't have good screeners so we can say well the arthritis society in some places like ontario it's oh hip coverage they can go screen them and like give them advice on fibromyalgia or if they see a big male or rash. But I think it's just, it, it's, it's a, it's, it's a real, I, I hate to say it on podcast, but it's a real shit show. And I don't know how to make it better because if we can't spend the time seeing the ones we need to see, and I can't get someone with arthralgia in six weeks, if they say the the most likely that they actually had RA in our study was the, the referring physician or nurse practitioner said, I see swollen joints it still could have been erosive OA, but if they've seen it, it's usually true. If they say, I don't know, I didn't look at them, that doesn't help us.
0: Yeah, that's uh, this is very challenging and really it's cost efficiency for both hospital systems and practices. When I ran my own practice at Presbyterian Hospital, we used to use uh, a free screening clinic as a way of getting new patients for clinical trials. And we would have an, an announcement and free screening clinic well, and we would had we had four providers, and each provider had like a a nurse assistant working with them. Patients filled out a one page form. We were did we did six minute visits. We would see sixty patients in three hours. And wow. I'm telling you it was great rheumatology. We identified people who needed to be seen, people who just needed a referral to the right spot. Some people went into clinical trials. But it was great learning and really, really efficient. Um, and But we burn three hours of the week uh, screening people who we may or may not have seen otherwise. So anyway, I don't know if that works for other people. Um, you know, Jen, I don't know if you saw uh, on this week and on the, all the work we're doing on on RA this month, um, uh, Richard Conway wrote a nice um, uh, provocative blog on um, the ACR ILD guidelines, What Were They Smoking?, um, you're familiar with these ILD guidelines, and I'll basically say, I mean, one of Richard's main points was that you know a lot of this was extrapolation from other conditions and other situations where mainly the main form of of, of ILD is NSIP, whereas an RA it's UIP, and you know making you know, these le- le- leaps of faith between them really makes no sense. But what was your take a on where do the ACR ILD gu- guidelines get it right, and and what about Richard Conway's objections.
1: Right. So first of all, I congratulate the people that did the uh, ILD guidelines for RA, for um, Rheumatology because it's RA, CTD, et cetera, because it's not easy. So, you know, getting a group together and getting consensus. So good, good for ACR for doing a stab at it. And I would say mostly they got it right. They were saying don't use glucocorticoids and systemic sclerosis. Um, don't keep repeating um, certain tests if they're not indicated. They did say, I think they did say do a six minute walk, which I've never done in my life, but the, Pulmonary hypertension people do it, but I'm not so sure the ILD people do it, but whatever. I've never done it, never will, I'm sure. Um, I, I,
0: I did it, but my patients never came back.
1: Yeah, they walked out. It was a six-minute yeah. walkout. Yes, exactly. So, um, so I mean, there were a lot of things that way. They did say, don't bronch, like the patient doesn't need a lung biopsy or bronchoscopy. I'm kind of paraphrasing it a bit. If we know it's their rheumatology condition, and I do agree with that. That was actually really good. So, so they got lots of stuff right. The algorithm in general isn't too bad. Where I agree with Richard, and again, Richard Conway, uh, good on you. You're, you're not afraid to say what you think and to back it up with evidence. So I did agree with his um, smoking gun, smoking gun editorial. So where he, he got it right and he's questioning, or at least I agree with him is... The, the first, second, third line treatment and RAILD. So when I first trained or in, was in early practice, we did use cyclo for RAILD. But back then we only had gold, methotrexate, D-Pen. They, they'd already burned through those. It was even before laflunamide days. So cyclo was what we did. Um, but to, to suggest azathioprine, mycophenolate, mofetil and cyclophosphamide, all of which would be quite okay in scleroderma, not in the order I'm giving you in an order of MMF first and systemic sclerosis. And they, the order there made a lot of sense to me and RA number one, we've got to treat the underlying disease. And none of those are very good at treating inflammatory arthritis. So I would go and do go to rituximab, maybe tocilizumab, maybe a Jack, um, uh, certainly abitacept. So rituximab and abitacept have a lot of data. Tocilizumab we're inferring from a certain data, like, like the, uh, the, the, the two scleroderma studies. So I would go uh, like rituximab would be my number one first line advanced therapy. If someone has RAILD or if they get RAILD and it's worsening and they're on a TNF, I would still switch them to ritux, but I would also consider abatacept and maybe tocilizumab and maybe a jack. So the order doesn't seem to be me to be as um, perhaps as updated as I, I get it. These are more cohorts and clinical studies and registries and stuff but that's where I just don't agree with them. Or if you do, you've got to use what? Cyclo and a drug to treat their RA. We don't combine like that. Increased risk of infection.
0: Okay. Let's end with a discussion of what the session that you ran this week on Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Um, this past week was oral surveillance study revisited. You had a great panel. You moderated Roy Fleischman, Jeff Curtis, John Giles, real experts in, in this particular study. And you sort of did a rehash that same day, I had published this VA study um, where they looked at 35,000 RA patients receiving 88,000 drug courses, and they looked at what kind of drug use they had prior to the FDA decision on oral surveillance, which was January 2021, and after that, and they showed cr- quite clearly that leading up to the FDA decision, there was a steady growth of Jack inhibitor use in the VA population, uh, and this is a U.S. VA population. Uh, older males. Um, and then with the announcement, a steady decline, so much so that in the two years after, at least a 19% drop. And while that JAK inhibitor use dropped following the FDA decision, there was this rise in TNF inhibitor. So um, I thought it was an interesting study. It helped inform some of the discussion. When you When you let off this discussion, which by the way, people can listen to on a podcast, we have it up there or on YouTube or on the website, it's called Oral Surveillance Revisited um, with Janet moderating it. The first thing we showed was a survey of, of, of our rheumatologist, 213, I think, showing that um, there was this decision, there was a regulatory change. And when you ask people about the effects, they three-quarters of them, two-thirds of them, are reducing or being more selective about their use of JAK inhibitors um, based on one study, based on one FDA action were you surprised at any of that
1: um so first of all I'm not surprised because even prior to oral surveillance the EMEA had uh had made a ruling because of the increased VTE talking a bit about infection and also talking about death rate in the arm the 10 BID let's remember got stopped and those patients were transferred over to five BIDs of tofacidinib so I'm I'm not i I'm not surprised because I think it's two things. First of all, this study was a, it is only one study, but it is a giant RCT and will never be redone on this class of drugs, in my opinion, because it won't be. And we're going to find an underpowered cardiovascular kind of quasi answer on the baricitinib study. And why do I say underpowered? Because it's not powered, it's powered for VTEs, not for right. MI. Right. So it's a bit of a different population. That's the first thing. The second thing is I think, I think people are more apt, particularly rheumatologists, where we often are, uh, quite appropriately, probably are more conservative than, say, emergency room where you have to make a decision today. We have time with our patients. We don't have to make a life and death decision today for most things that we're doing for, with our patients. So I think we tend to be more uh, fear, not fear-based, I'll call it more, we we look at safety to benefit. I must say I try to look at benefit to safety because I'm never prescribing a drug for it to be safe. I'm prescribing it for it to be effective, but with a good um, ratio of Effectiveness and safety. So, with that in mind, I think the FDA, uh, heating, and plus other health authorities probably did indeed change behavior because we we do have options and we do want to be safe for our patients. And in fairness, the VA is again the smoking gun of high risk people. They're a bit older. The ones going to the VA, they're eighty uh, percent men, whereas RA in general is eighty percent women in the background population. And the smoking rates are pretty high in vets compared to again age and sex matched uh, general population or. Even even the rest of the RA population so these are higher risk patients not all but on average I'm generalizing to the average patient there so they probably did not probably I think they did the right thing by being cautious and I think being selective the way that survey went does selective mean I profile and less if I think they're the highest risk I won't prescribe or I profile and now I use a TNF first and a jack or um, later line therapy and you did ask about what line of therapy for JAX and um, surprisingly to me US is pretty similar to rest of the world when you really have a very strong recommendation that um, JAX um, should only be in a way prescribed or reimbursed after a TNF whereas most other countries you can use what what you want but you might want to do an order effect of the best coverage or more biosimilar use throughout the world compared to US.
0: Yeah one of the things that was surprising about the survey we did prior to this Tuesday night rheumatology we ask, when, where do you position the JAK inhibitor? And yeah, most people said, um, I think it was like 30, 40% said after the first TNF. But after the second TNF was a minority, meaning like this has been, uh, clearly there's been a shift. And I don't know if it's prompted by this or this is an evolutionary change. Uh, the people that would use that after the second TNF, was, I think, 10 to 15%, that the next in line after the first TNF was after another non-TNF biologic. And then they would use a and inhibitor as a second choice. So I thought that was all interesting um, about, w- and it clearly our thinking on this has evolved, um, but there's you know a healthy number of rheumatologists who haven't changed their prescribing behavior as a result of this. Actually, I think I'm one of them. I think some people are more conservative uh, are thinking twice about this. Um, well, anyway, from having this great session that you had that went very fast with the discussions and the questions was there anything in the discussion that really popped out at you that uh, you'd want to, the audience to know about?
1: Well, here's—I won't call it surprising, but but I think the way John Giles said it was really really good. I think he was the one that said it is this generalizable to all jacks? So we were asked that, and that was a great question. And John, maybe Jeff said it's one, one of the panelists said, you know, if it was found to be non, non inferior, we're back to those words again. In other words, if it was about the same, the cardiovascular and the cancer risk and all the other risks, if it was about the same, I think in our minds, we would generalize it to all the jacks. So why would it be different if it's, if it's, um only tofa will look at this kind of uh, question because they were mandated to look at it so if it's tofa sidinib is it then can i generalize it to maybe a jack1 or to a jack2 or um frankly to a tick2 which we're not going to use in ra yeah, we might use a jack1 tick2 someday but we're not going to use the the um, tick2 drug at this point in time in ra because it's not going to work in ra right. so so is it generalizable to the other jacks and i guess um I, Yes, putting it that way, of course it should be, but with all these databases showing um, that this rate, the rate is similar in the databases when you reproduce in high-risk patients, but but the rate on other drugs seems to be pretty similar to a JAK. And that's not always true in the that STAR study, which was a giant trial. And you'll never be, well, it's not a trial. A giant look at multi-registries stuck together. Um, we can call it a trial, but I don't mean an RCT. It's an observational study. And certainly the rate was the very same as 1.32 or something in the high-risk patients, which was exactly the cardiovascular rate. Yeah in um in the tofacidinib oral surveillance trial. And it was numerically higher, but not statistically than the TNFs. Now, the patients were a bit older. And even when you do propensity scoring matching, the, the uh, JAK patients had a little bit of a disadvantage. They were older, had a little bit more uh, failure of drugs. So it's not exactly the same population, but that being said and done, I don't know, there's a a lot of uh, doubt in my mind if it should be generalizable to all jacks or not. And for my prescribing practices, where I am very particular is is the high-risk population. To me, the high-risk population is those who have MIs have MIs. So those who have had revascularization, unstable angina, uh, or maybe stacking a ton of risk factors together. But my 72-year-old lady with well-controlled hypertension and type 2 diabetes, I would feel... Not a big problem offering her a Jack, but I'd say we have other options. What would you like an oral? Cause the way we always used to talk about it is do you want a pill or an injection or an IV, right? Which is not a scientific way, but it's sometimes a patient preference way. So I still am offering a 72 year old lady Jack as first advanced therapy, but with some caveats, I'm not going to offer a 72 year old man who's a heavy smoker, uncontrolled diabetes, a Jack first. So I have changed my opinion in a, a proportion of patients.
0: Yeah, and my follow-up, I agree with everything you said. My concern going forward is that there are too many um, oral surveillance wannabe redesigns of data to say, listen, when we try to match up our large registry, our large data set to be something that looks like the high-risk population, we don't see those results. And you can't compare apples to hand grenades. Uh, and that's what that is. They're not even close. But yet, at ULAR, we saw at least four of those studies. At ACR yes. we're going to see another half dozen of them that are going to try to say, you know, I don't know, I'm not seeing it, as if to say you really shouldn't worry about this whole jack inhibitor issue. And the answer is, a well-designed trial has taught you where you should worry. Over 65 smokers with MIs and some combination of all that are the people that you've got to worry at. So
1: yeah, um, I agree. You can't. You you cannot overcome a, a, a larger R, RCT like we'll we'll probably never have. Never is a strong word. We're not going to have many larger trials than this. So this was designed to look at something and um, and it failed. Although the the rate, unfortunately for tofacidinib, everything was higher. The VTE, the serious infection rate, um, the MIs and the malignancy. And the malignancy is what surprised me actually most. So we, we can't make it go away by a bunch of registries. So it is true. And it's generalizable in my mind to the very high risk patients. I'm not going to generalize it in my mind, but I could be wrong to anyone that would be eligible to get into the trial. Cause that would be a lot of my population, you know, 50 plus with one or more cardiovascular risk, but most events, events occur in high-risk people in any study, so they're the people to worry about. But I still can't explain malignancy. Does it worry me a lot? No, but I do have to have a frank discussion with patients that I believe are high-risk malignancy who are the high-risk cardiovascular, older right. men who smoked.
0: Uh, yes, and obesity and bad nutrition and you know, all the things that contribute cardiovascular risk can contribute to malignancy risk as well. Um, I want to end with um, how you think we should be handling this multimorbidity issue Um, Today, or yesterday on the Room Now, great video by Brian England on multimorbidity, really nicely done. Um, And the one thing that, that he points out about this oral surveillance is oral surveillance is a multimorbidity study, meaning the inclusion criteria were people with multimorbidity. And we saw some really striking things. And so when you brought that up to your panelists, you know, they all jumped on and said, this is a big issue. We pay, have to pay attention to it. We have to be proactive. We have to measure blood pressure, look at lipids, not be afraid to write prescriptions, whatever. And, and, and Gee, it sounded great, except, and I think when I ask anybody in the audience, are you paying attention to multimorbidity and smoking? And the answer is yes, Are you? but truly, are you taking ownership of multimorbidity? And the answer is no. So how do you handle this and what should rheumatologists be doing?
1: Right. So one quick comment, Dr. England, also a rising star, someone to follow just as an aside for the audience to hear. Um, he's excellent. Um, so I think I tried to give a solution, but I, but I gave a solution that I don't do just to say. So my analogy was um, our our Crohn's group. Like we have a lot of GI people here who specialize in IBD. So the IBD group on the on their letters because it's in their electronic medical record. The last paragraph, although it could be shorter, by the way, says your patient is at risk for cardiovascular. Is at risk for skin cancer. Is at risk for a couple other you know a few other things are said malignancy. So we suggest just regular screening, et cetera. So they're putting it back onto the family doc. But I think I, I think we should just make a module and people can modify it that, um, by the way, because it's true in PSA, it's true in RA, it's a bit less true in spa, it's true in lupus, that we should probably have a, mo- a little line, just two lines saying, your patient's at a higher risk, treat them like a type two diabetic with all the targets. That I think, and, and my that's my impression, to treat them like a type two diabetic targets for lipids for blood pressure and for an H, uh, for an A1C if they are if they're uh, they are diabetic. But I think that would go a long way and then encourage smoking cessation and exercise and healthy Mediterranean diet. If we had just two lines, maybe the primary care could act on one thing every time they saw the patient and we could reinforce it. But it's almost like the best kept secret. And we've looked, we actually um, published on it in Lupus saying, do you know they're at higher risk for cardiovascular? Yes. Do you tell anyone in the notes? Nope most Canadian rheumatologists said, no, I don't. So if we know it is, and we're keeping the secret, we're actually kind of a little bit to blame or a lot, a hundred percent to blame. So I think I'm not going to do it all. And I'm not good at doing it all. And I don't even know how to treat diabetes now that all the J drugs seem to be a bit out of fashion now that Ozempic's in more fashion. But I think we got to get people to manage, whether it's our own nurse team, whether it's the primary care, whether we send them to a specialist that has an interest, an internist, a cardiologist, what have you. And should we be doing, Coronary calcifications on all these people on CT. I don't know. I do that's not our standard of care right now. So I think we have a long way to go. But putting our head in the sand, including myself, is not the right answer.
0: Yeah, I think we can learn from the surgeons who we used to make fun of, meaning that, you know, day one, day two, day three, post op, they do no labs. Why? We don't want to find any problems. We don't want to keep in the hospital any longer. And the point is, if you do a lab, you're now stuck with the result, and you got to deal with it. So yeah, I would say you should be doing A1Cs every six months, a lipid panel every six months. You obviously you're already doing LFTs and CBCs, and whether you extend that to also, I'm going to take responsibility for vaccinations or skin exams. The idea is you got to start somewhere, but right, you know right. something hey, you to react to. I mean, you can great. pass it off to someone else, but you got you can you you're you're you're, you're responsible.
1: Right. And it's not every six months for everything. I mean, we, we would risk profile, right? But if you have a diabetic, I mean, right. now they can achieve an HbA1c that's normal. It's achievable. They can achieve a normal blood pressure and normal cholesterol. So now that we actually can meet the targets, we meaning healthcare system, I think we have to do the best for our patients. And I think there will be more and more um, probably clinics where these autoimmune high-risk patients will be going to some really smart general internist or whoever it's going to be, where they're going to do good cardiovascular and diabetes and skin and et cetera screening and mental health screening and get people to where they need to go. But maybe again, uh, I said dystopia before, maybe again, I'm going to the utopian world, but we can do better for our patients. And I think they would appreciate it even more than me the increasing their methotrexate dose.
0: Janet, thank you very much for a fabulous discussion. I want to encourage the audience to um, uh, go to the website and check out these citations and learn more. Uh, follow what we're doing during the hard uh, decisions in RA uh, campaign month in September and should probably listen to this podcast again. I would recommend it uh, on a 200% increase in speed.
1: You got it. I would. Then you can listen to it twice and you haven't lost any time. Thanks, Jack.
0: (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Take care.
1: Bye.